Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Also, uh, keep your thumb there and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. As we continue our study in uh, the Ten Commandments, we come to commandment number 7. And uh, as uh, we were considering even this morning briefly, as I was unpacking Romans chapter 5 and uh, looking at uh, the effects of the sinfulness of, of mankind and the Im- imputation of the sin of Adam into humankind, we considered the sexual revolution and uh, the massive impact it's having in the world today, the infiltration of uh, the sexual revolution into our, our schools, our institutions, our hospitals, our, our, our businesses, our entertainment, just everywhere we turn, it's infiltrating and and uh, I had the sense this week that it would be important not just to spend uh, one week on uh, this commandment, but uh, a couple of weeks, uh, two, maybe three weeks, uh, drawing upon uh, lots of important uh, things as it concerns uh, the seventh commandment. For as we've been learning, uh, God's law uh, is multidimensional. It's uh, thou shalt not commit adultery means a lot more than just not committing adultery. Uh, It means so much more than that, as we've seen from the first six commandments. Uh, So let us stand now uh, for the reading of God's word, first from Exodus 20, uh, then from Genesis 2, 18 through 25, as we begin to unpack uh, the meaning of marriage and biblical sexuality over the next couple of weeks. Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. And then Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We have been considering the Ten Commandments over the last several uh, weeks and uh, have been considering the fact that the law continues to function in the life of a Christian. We have uh, considered how the currents of Antinomianism are certainly drawing people out into a sea of lawlessness, even within uh, the life of the Christian church. And so these three functions of the law, the law as a restraint for sin, uh, the law as a mirror that shows us our sin and our, of course, our great need of a savior. The law was never given to uh, us in order to give us a way to salvation. Uh, The law was never given to us in order to show us a way to be right with God because Uh, The law condemns us. The law points out our sin. It exposes our sin and shows us our need for a Savior. But it doesn't end there. Because in Christ, united to Christ and justified by grace through faith, the law then is a guide for the Christian life. How are we to please God? We have the law that shows us how to please God. It never becomes something by which we earn our way to God or, or gain access to God. It's a way that we please God and a way that we know how to honor and to glorify him with our lives as his blood-bought children. Christ has accomplished our redemption, but in Christ we are called to be law keepers. 
to live according to God's law. Never can we do this perfectly. It's why we always need Christ. It's why we always have a confession of sin in our services. It's why every week we have the Lord's table before us. Because we still sin. Sin no longer reigns, but sin remains in us as Christian believers. But it's the law that shows us how to live the Christian life. It continues to show us our need of Christ. It also shows us how we are called to live. And we've seen in each of the first six commandments how important it is that we understand these different functions of the law of God. And this evening we come to the seventh commandment. And uh, every single commandment is of utmost importance. Uh, this commandment, uh, however, uh, it, it comes to us in a day uh, when uh, there is much anarchy, uh, sexual anarchy and revolution. And uh, for those who perhaps are concerned for uh, the evangelical church capitulating to the sexual revolution or for uh, our children uh, giving in to the uh, tenets of the sexual revolution, well, we ought to be concerned. Because we see this happening all uh, around us. Uh, thus, taking some time uh, to consider the sexual revolution and how we ought to respond to it with a biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality. How can we really understand what adultery is unless we understand what marriage is? How do we understand what biblical sexuality is unless we clearly define it? And that's what we've seen in the church today. There's such a lack of catechetical preaching and teaching in the life of the church today, there's so much entertainment in the big box churches that nobody even knows what to believe about marriage and sexuality. Some of the statistics I will share in just a few moments, I believe will surprise you as they have surprised me. But when we look at the seventh commandment and we think about our confessional heritage uh, and we think about the larger catechism, the Westminster larger catechism, uh, we uh, see that uh, the Seventh Commandment is so much more uh, than just not committing adultery. It actually has much more breadth. It's, it's, a, it's a broader command than that. and deals with many things in relation to marriage and sexuality. Question 138 asks, what are the duties required in the Seventh Commandment? And, and as I read these and also read uh, the prohibitions, these are things we're going to consider over the next few weeks. What are the duties required in the Seventh Commandment? Answer, the duties required in the Seventh Commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those who have not the gift of Continency, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanliness and resisting temptations thereunto. Question 139, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment besides the neglect of duties required are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts. All unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. All corrupt or filthy communications or listening thereunto. Wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages. Allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews. You can look that up later. Keeping of stews. Have you been keeping stews lately? Look that up. And, res and resorting to them. Entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanliness, either in ourselves or others. Now, how many have thought about the Seventh Commandment in that kind of detail? Well, our, our forefathers did. Westminster, and they were right as they were drawing on all kinds of scripture as it pertained to the seventh commandment. But dear ones, isn't it true that our culture is obsessed with sex, sexuality, and sexual identity? 
There is hardly a marketing scheme, an institution, or a form of entertainment that isn't focused on sexuality. It's a prevalent theme in most modern-day movies, television shows, news stories, and entertainment in general. Video games and popular music are full of highly sexualized images and lyrics. Public discourse in our nation's government, military, and education system is consumed with sexual identity politics and the radical reshaping of sexual ethics in America. And how could we not mention the widespread proliferation of pornography? It's everywhere. That wicked pandemic that is searing consciences and destroying relationships. It has become so widespread that I have heard, even in our own circles, of ministers being approved for ministry while having some kind of addiction or close to an addiction of pornography. It's become so common that people are shrugging their shoulders at it. One does not need a PhD in social science to recognize our culture's obsession with sex and sexuality. It is one of the major signs that we live in a post-Christian hedonistic culture, a culture more driven by pleasure than values, more controlled by base appetites than truth. And while we've seen the wave of this sexual revolution slowly gaining strength since the 1960s, in the last few years it has turned into a tsunami, overwhelming, as I mentioned before, overwhelming and impacting everything in its path, and even impacting the most vulnerable spaces, like bathrooms, locker rooms, showers, and dorm rooms. Beloved, it's a new day in American culture. In his excellent book entitled, We Cannot Be Silent, Al Mohler writes this, quote, We are living in the midst of a revolution. The Christian church in the West now faces a set of challenges that exceeds anything it has experienced in the past. The revolution that has transformed most of Western Europe and much of North America is a revolution more subtle and more dangerous than revolutions faced in previous generations. This is a revolution of ideas, one that is transforming the entire moral structure of meaning and life that human beings have recognized for millennia. Christ Church, this sexual revolution is real, and we are seeing the effects of it everywhere. So what are we to do? What are we to do? How are we to respond as Christian believers? Well, some will respond with fear. Many are responding with fear. They are paralyzed with fear, fear about the future, fear for our nation, fear for our children, fear for our churches. Others will respond with anger. Many are responding this way, unable to engage in civilized discourse, angry with everybody and everything. Others will respond by withdrawing from the culture, leaving it to rot and nostalgically pining away for the good old days, as if there were ever good old days, by the way. There never were. But these are serious days as it concerns the sexual revolution. None of these are the right responses. None of these responses demonstrate what it means to live biblically and courageously in a post-Christian culture. So how shall we live amidst this sexual revolution? The first way to live is, is this way. We ought to know the truth. We ought to know the truth. This is what we are doing this evening, isn't it? We are being reminded of the truth. We need to know God's objective truth on the nature and purpose of human sexuality if we are going to stand firm and reach out to others with this truth. Beloved, our culture no longer embraces traditional Christian values related to marriage, gender, and sexuality. People have forgotten what it means to blush anymore. I remember that scene in, in Forrest Gump when, when Forrest and his wife were walking by that, that television screen and Elvis was dancing and shaking his hips and, and she put her hands over his eyes, as it were. Don't look at that. Think of how we have progressed. 
Elvis was the height of immodesty in the 1950s. Now look where we are. One can hardly turn on the television or see a movie without such rank, unnatural and ungodly iterations of sexuality. To live courageously in our post-Christian society, we must first be, quote, prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us with gentleness and respect. In addition to knowing the truth, we need to fight for the truth. Fight for the truth. At such a time as this, we neither need to accommodate culture or withdraw from culture. Rather, we need to lovingly confront the culture and fight for the truth in the midst of it. We, of course, are not trying to transform the culture. It's an impossible task, and it's not one the church is called to. And yet, we are called to be salt and light in the midst of the culture and to reach out to those who are lost within our culture. We are to know God's beautiful design for marriage and sexuality, and to fight for the truth, to be courageous. Thirdly, we are to live out the truth. Professing Christians are not doing a good job modeling a commitment to biblical marriage and sexuality. Indeed, current statistics show that in general we are failing to shine as lights in the world in this area. In a fairly recent poll, 68% of professing evangelical Christian singles between 18 and 29 reported that they were either currently sexually active or had been in the past year. Almost 70% of professing believers. I've spoken to friends like Carl Truman and others who are among young, Christian young people all of the time, and it's extraordinary what looseness there is as it concerns biblical sexuality among young Christians. Living courageously does not mean just knowing the truth and fighting for the truth. It means living out the truth. We need, by the grace and strength of Christ, to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Not only does the world need to see models of purity, uh, modesty, and, and, and godly marriage, but so does the church. We need to see this even within our own walls. So do our children. Indeed, one of the best apologetics for the truth is sincere faith lived out daily. So we've seen that marriage and sexuality are broken in our culture. And perhaps in some of our lives here this evening, where is the best place to go when something is broken? Well, it's to the one who made it, of course, to the one who designed it, to the one who drew up the blueprint. And the blueprint for marriage and sexuality is found in God's word, which is the final authority for all things. You see, it's not individuals who determine the nature and purpose of marriage and sexuality. It's not politicians or activist groups, nor is it a culture that gets to define marriage and sexuality. Rather, it is God. Amen? It is God who defines marriage and sexuality. We need not be embarrassed or ashamed to say that. He is the living God. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He has made mankind who is the crown of his creation, made in his image. And he has established marriage and sexuality for his own glory, and for our good. Therefore, it is God who determines what is right and wrong concerning marriage and sexual ethics, not the ever-shifting, always-changing culture. This was as true for Old Testament Israel, surrounded by idolatrous nations, and the early church in the midst of Greco-Roman culture, as it is for us today. With these things in mind, I want us to turn our attention this evening to Genesis 2, 18 through 25. The setting of this text is in the idyllic pre-fall Garden of Eden. God spoke the universe into existence in six days, and on the sixth day created his greatest masterpiece, mankind. He made Adam and Eve. Male and female, he created them in the likeness of his own image. It states in chapter 1, verse 27. And in chapter 2, verse 18, Moses gives us even greater detail about the creation of Eve, as well as the divinely established institution of marriage. And so there are three points this evening. Here they are. God's sovereign love, God's gracious gift, and God's holy design. God's sovereign love, God's gracious gift, and God's holy design. 
So this evening, we're going to look at this positive view of marriage and sexuality. And then next time, God willing, we'll explore some of the departures from God's design and how we ought to respond to that and what God's thoughts are about those things. God's sovereign love, verses 18 through 20. Look with me again at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Dogs are great. They're great. They're everywhere in Charleston. You go to the beach, you're there for just a little while, a dog will chase you eventually. Or come, like one did a couple years ago, and ran up to us and grabbed my wife's Subway sandwich and ran off and ate it. And the owner just gave us a wave. As if this is just totally normal, don't worry about it, my dog was hungry. And you had some food for him. Dogs are great. Horses are fun to ride. Birds are beautiful to look at. We have so many beautiful birds here in the low country. Cows are fun to tip. (laughs) But none of these animals were suitable companions to Adam. He was made in God's image with a reasonable soul. And these animals did not have this. Even With the animals surrounding him, Adam is alone. Here the Lord demonstrates his sovereign love and kindness towards Adam and all men who come after him. He purposes to make a helper fit for him because he says it's not good for him to be alone. In Hebrew, the Hebrew text, these two words, not good, lotov, are are emphatic. And so God promises to create a helper for him. She is called A helper, not because she is ontologically inferior to the man, but because man was created first and Eve was created to come alongside him to fulfill an essential and irreplaceable role in his life, that is, as a lifelong companion and a devoted mother of their children, someone to come alongside and assist and to help. Unless we fail to state the obvious for those who might miss it, notice that God in his wisdom and purpose, in his sovereign design, saw fit to give the man a woman, not an animal and not another man. You know, in Leviticus chapter 19, when we have clear teaching about unnatural forms of sexuality, we see that bestiality is mentioned as well as homosexuality. And then there also mentioned are the sacrifices made to Molech, the sacrifice of children to Molech. So we see these wicked and heinous sins being committed, and it's not an animal, it's not another man that's given to Adam, but a woman. God said, I will make a helper fit for him, and so God gave him a woman. God gave man woman because she is fit, fit for him. How so? Emotionally. She is emotionally fit for him. Men and women are different emotionally, and they complement each other. You know the old book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. It sold over 50 million copies simply to make this point that men and women are different. And that's a good thing. Amen? We rejoice in these differences. Generally, men and women relate differently, think differently, and act differently. And we rejoice in these differences. And they complement each other. God gave man a woman because they complemented each other. And they complement each other physically. I hate to state the obvious this evening, but it seems that we are in a day where we need to state the obvious. Men and women 
physically complement each other. One goes with the other. The male and female sexual organs created by God are divinely designed for procreation and sexual intimacy. God's purpose was to give man a helper fit for him emotionally and physically. And thirdly, spiritually. I don't have time to unpack this idea. There's something beautiful about the way that husbands and wives complement each other in their walks with the Lord. After 23 years of marriage, I can tell you this is a real thing. And I rejoice in it. So we've considered God's love by purposing to give Adam a wife, a helper who is fit for him. Now let us consider God's gracious gift in verses 21 through 23. Look with me there again, verse 21 and following. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God himself brought her to Adam. What a beautiful and tender moment this must have been. Just think of it. If you were there looking on, God bringing her to him. The nature of marriage is beautifully exhibited by this image of God taking a rib from the man in order to create the woman. The 17th century Puritan Matthew Henry summed it up beautifully when he wrote this, quote, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Eve is neither meant to be a slave or a master. No, she is meant to come alongside Adam to complete him, to live in harmony with him, to love him, and to be loved by him, to submit to his leadership, to respect him, and to follow him. According to God's design, the husband and wife carry out differing roles in the marriage. And not only does carrying out these roles cultivate harmony and peace and joy in the marriage, it also provides an earthly metaphor for the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. This is absolutely glorious. And, and as Martin Lloyd-Jones said many years ago in a sermon in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, if we do not think of marriage in relation to the relationship of Christ and his church, we're not thinking of it properly. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and following, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For one, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Dear one, Christ loves you, and he nourishes you, and he cherishes you, and he gives you himself through the means of grace. And, and we as husbands are called to love our wives in this way, giving ourselves for her and to her, nourishing her and protecting her, and blessing her. And then Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, he writes, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. If I can say just for a moment to all of you single girls who are waiting upon God for the one that you would one day God willing, Mary, keep your standards high. Don't be discouraged. Keep your standards high. Continue to pray. Wait upon the Lord. And you see I'm looking over here because this is where all the young people sit over here. 
Not that you're old or anything. <laughs> but but don't don't um, give in to this idea that you're just never going to find that that man who's going to love you and lead you in Christ. Uh, wait upon the Lord. Better to be single, wishing and praying that you were married than to be married and wishing and praying that you were single. Because you've married someone who is not leading you in the Lord. Same with you men, be patient and prayerful. That you would find a young lady who loves the Lord, who is abiding in Christ. And looking to carry out these roles. We don't want to be unequally yoked. And so let us trust the Lord. I'm so thankful that in God's providence, I was almost 27 years old when I met my dear wife. And I'm so thankful that that was the time I I waited. And that uh, she wasn't snatched up by someone much more worthy than me. The Lord blesses us when we wait upon him and we trust him. But here in this section in Ephesians 5, we see that the husband's role is to be the the spiritual leader and head of his wife and home. The husband is not to be domineering or harsh, but to show Calvary love. John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, talks about this Calvary love that husbands are called to show their wives and Notice it says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, past tense, and gave himself up for her. In other words, there's this Calvary love that husbands are called to show their wives. And when you think about Calvary love, we think about what characterized the love that Christ showed to the church on Calvary. He loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So what does that Calvary love look like? It's a love that's sacrificial. It's a love that's patient. It's a love that's forgiving. doesn't hold grudges. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If Christ could forgive those who were spitting on him and mocking him and had nailed him to a cross and had a heart of forgiveness towards them, ought we not to have a heart of forgiveness towards our spouse? Holding grudges and letting walls be built up is not what Christians are called to do. We must repent of that even before we come to this table this evening. This Calvary love is servant-hearted. It puts the wife first. It's not harsh or domineering. Secondly, we see here the wives are called to respectfully submit to their husband's leadership, even as unto Christ, to show respect and love and patience. The husband's job is not to make the wife submit, and the wife's job is not to make her husband a godly spiritual leader. The only job we have is to be that which God has called us to be and to carry out that God-given role within the marriage. So God takes the rib from Adam and creates Eve, a helper fit for him. Then in verse 23, Adam declares, we assume with great joy, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. These are Adam's only recorded words before he and Eve fell into sin. He rejoices poetically in this gift, this amazing gift of God. He rejoices in this marriage, this wonderful and gracious gift. And this brings us finally to God's holy design in verses 24 and 25. Look with me there in verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Beloved, here once again we see God's holy design for marriage. Uh, Again, it's, it's a marriage that's between a man and a woman. Again, next time we're going to look at some of the departures from God's design for marriage. But, but this evening, I want us to simply see how clear God's blueprint for marriage is. A man shall leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. That is the divine design and directive 
And as Luther says, quote, there is no more lovely, friendly, or charming relationship, communion, and company than a good marriage. Beloved, if I can just pause here for a moment and say, those of you who are married, and, and, and take this and put it in your pocket, those of you who are one day going to be married, cultivate your marriage. Don't let your marriage become stale. Spend time together. Don't get into the rut of being so busy and so distracted with whatever it is, with work and with kids and whatever else, that you allow your marriage to always take second fiddle, to always be the second or third or fourth or tenth thing on the list that you're going to cultivate and, and foster. Be intentional and purposeful about fostering a godly marriage, a healthy marriage. Don't lose that emphasis. Perhaps this evening after the service, you may need to sit down with your spouse and say, hey, you know, we haven't spent much time together, just the two of us. Let's commit to spending time together weekly. Maybe twice a month is a good start. But be intentional. And husbands, I can say, upon the authority of being a minister for over 20 years and counseling a lot of marriages and such, and then being married myself for, for 23 years, almost 24, is your wife will never feel more loved than when you specifically make time to spend together, not just to do errands or to uh, carry out certain duties, but just to be together, to spend time together, to foster your relationship. Don't let that slide. Don't let that go away. Commit to time together as husband and wife. We see, secondly, they shall become one flesh. Once again, we are reminded of the fact that God made men and women with compatible parts to express sexual intimacy and oneness within the context of marriage. And here, I want to make the point that sex and sexuality within the confines of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman is something which the Bible encourages, celebrates, and even commands. It's nothing to be ashamed of or feel guilty about. Sexuality, sex, is something to be enjoyed and celebrated in the context of biblical marriage. But many view sex in the wrong way. They've been sold a bill of goods about sexuality, and it causes confusion for many believers. It would not be surprising if many in this room had a wrong view of sex and sexuality. One writer sets out, what are perhaps the three most prevalent ways that people think about sex in our culture? Here are three approaches that are often found in our culture. Number one, sex is just a natural appetite. Like any other base appetite, like hunger, for instance, it should be satisfied. We should not limit ourselves to one partner because like trying different kinds of cuisine, we should feel free to experience different kinds of partners. There's nothing necessarily sacred or special about sex or the marriage bed, they say. To say anything otherwise is prudish. Sex is simply an appetite to be fulfilled and nothing more. That's a very common approach, is it not? Another approach is that sex and sexuality is part of our lower physical nature and not our higher spiritual nature. We see this in Augustine, sadly. It's a necessary evil, some say, necessary for procreation, and we should not be, excuse me, we should be ashamed of any enjoyment connected to it. This idea comes from a highly dualistic and Gnostic worldview. All things material and physical are inherently evil. It is a very negative view of sex and has plagued many Christians for millennia. Thirdly, another wrong view is that sex and sexuality is a way to express oneself. It's part of one's identity, sometimes the main part of their identity. We see this happening in the side B gay Christian movement, for instance, where there are those who want to call themselves a gay Christian. The idea here is that we are our sexuality, and so we must express that sexuality if we are going to be true to ourselves. 
We especially see this view today in the LGBTQ plus movement where sexuality defines personhood. We see this in a lesser way with heterosexual men and women being consumed with their appearance, with their sexual appeal. They define themselves by how physically attractive they are to others. Excessive exercise and strict diets and plastic surgery and immodest clothing underscore this approach to sexuality and is generally a very self-focused one. The idea here is that we are our sexuality and so we must express it to the fullest. These, these three approaches to sex and sexuality are all wrong and wrong-headed. God's word does not teach that sex and sexuality are merely an appetite to be satisfied, nor a necessary evil to be ashamed of, nor a means to finding identity. Now, these are all wrong. God created sex, and the Bible speaks very positively about sex when lovingly expressed within the confines of a marriage and even in places commands it. Indeed, when God established marriage, he said that the two shall become one flesh. And this is in reference to the gift of sexual intimacy that is meant to be enjoyed in the context of biblical marriage and not outside of it. Sexual activity outside of marriage is a sin. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against our neighbor. But this oneness does not simply mean physical oneness. Being one flesh is not simply referring to the sexual act itself. No, being one flesh is, is much more than that, which is why God's design is so beautiful and why departing from it invites destruction. Sex is an expression of union that goes beyond the physical. It deeply impacts the emotional, mental, and even spiritual parts of our lives. Sexual intimacy touches every part of our humanity which is precisely why it is designed for marriage. The Apostle Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 18, when he writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. What Paul means here is that to become one flesh means becoming one person. And so as one writer writes, quote, The Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you are also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Second thing we see here is that sex is a covenant renewal. What does that mean? Well, a marriage is not official before the eyes of God, as it were, until it is consummated in the marriage bed. And so my, the man who I call my pastor, Pastor Harry Reeder, uh, says something uh, in his services, which I then adopted, and I do this now as a minister, saying, upon the consummation of this marriage... So-and-so are husband and wife. Why is that? Well, because sex is a sign and seal of the couple's oneness and loyalty and faithfulness to one another. It's, it's that consummation of the marriage. That's why sex within marriage is not only celebrated in the Bible, as in the Song of Solomon, and encouraged in the Bible, as in our passage for this evening, but also commanded in the Bible. As in 1 Corinthians 7.3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. And so the sexual intimacy, it's not simply about pleasure, whether personal or mutual. It's even more importantly about that which renews your vows to one another, your love for one another, your dying allegiance to one another as husband and wife. So, beloved, as we can see, the Bible doesn't have a low and prudish view of sex. On the contrary, it has a very high view of sex and all that God intended for it to be in our lives and marriages. Again, what does this mean for those who are single? What does this mean for you? Again, it means that you wait upon the Lord and embrace the promises of, of his word that his grace is sufficient for you. 
in these days of singleness. And don't believe the lie that outside of a marriage relationship you are free to express your sexuality. Trust the Lord. Acknowledge him in all of your ways and he will make your path straight. God's grace is sufficient for you as you wait upon him regarding his plan for your life and your future. As we bring this time to a close, I want us to remember just a couple of things as we prepare to go to the Lord's table. God established marriage and sexuality. Thus, it is God who determines the nature and purpose of them. No person or institution can redefine marriage any more than a person can reassign their God-given gender. Marriage isn't redefinable any more than maleness or femaleness is redefinable. All that is happening in our culture today is the fruit of people rejecting God and losing touch with reality. And if I can just say this, within the church, there are a lot of people giving in to unnatural sexual desires, and lusts, think of pornography. And we need to repent of this. If this is taking place in your life right now, it's, it's likely in a room of this size that there are those who are, who are looking at pornography regularly, who are, who are expressing themselves in ungodly ways. It is time tonight to repent and to throw yourself into the arms of your merciful Savior, to turn from that sin, to speak to someone about that sin, as you will need accountability and encouragement and prayer. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is to know the truth, to fight for the truth, and to live out the truth. Don't give up and don't give in. Be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are unwilling to bow the knee to the 90-foot golden statue. All the cultural elites, all the important people who are invited to this, this big gathering, they bowed down when the music began to play. May we be those who stand up erect and say, no, I will not, I will not bow, but I will trust the Lord. Let us know the truth and fight for the truth. Thirdly, let us instruct our children. We need to be the ones instructing our children about these important issues. We don't want our children to be catechized by the culture as it concerns sex and sexuality. We don't want them to be led astray by ungodly peers at school, for instance, or on the soccer field, or teachers at school. We want to train them to think biblically about marriage and about sex. Fourthly, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Can we ever say this enough? Our best defense against sexual immorality is a vital and growing walk with God through Jesus Christ. When we abide in Christ, when he is holding the chief affections of our hearts, our desire is not to disobey him and to forsake the truth. On the contrary, when we are abiding in him, when we are making diligent use of the means of grace, it is our expressed desire to honor and to glorify the Lord with our bodies, with our minds, with our lives. And it's maturing in Christ when we begin to sense that our, 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 our affections are being drawn away by that which is ungodly and unclean. Repenting of those things and abiding in Christ. In the poll that I mentioned earlier, there were a couple of interesting stats connected to this whole idea. One was that professing single Christians who were infrequent Bible readers were 70% more likely to be involved in sexual immorality than those who read their Bibles frequently. Interesting statistic. Moreover, professing single believers who attended church less than weekly were twice as likely to be sexually active outside of marriage. What does this tell us? It tells us that the means of grace and the fellowship of the church are as important in our lives as God says that they are. And abiding in Christ means drinking deeply of the means of grace on the Lord's day. C.S. Lewis said this, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better 
than I do now. So beloved, let us look to Christ, the one who lived a perfectly pure life, who never had a sin of lust, who never gave in to any kind of temptation that was brought to him from outside of himself, who lived a perfectly chaste life, who obeyed the seventh commandment in every way, and then gave his perfectly chaste life on the cross to pay for all the sins that we have committed, sins of lust and fornication and unnatural forms of sexuality, that as we look to Christ by grace through faith, we know that he has died for those sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous, and then gave us his very righteousness. And so we stand before God justified, not because of anything that we've done or are doing or can do, but because all of what Christ has done in our stead as our perfect Savior. Let us look to him, and as we come to the table, may we remember Christ's perfect death, his glorious resurrection, and his ascension and his coming again. It's in him that we have salvation. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word and unpacking Genesis 2 and hearing again the teaching about what marriage is and why it was established. And Lord, we are so thankful for marriage as you've designed it to be. And we ask, Lord, that as a church and as individuals, as families, we would be committed to biblical marriage and sexuality, that we would not capitulate to the world's values and the wicked ideologies that are coming through in the sexual revolution. It's bearing down hard upon our culture and upon churches, and so many are giving in. So many are in the halfway house of side B gay Christianity, saying compromising things, even about the doctrine of sanctification and the gospel itself. And so, Lord, help us to stand firm, and we pray, Lord, for those who are married, that you would grant grace, that even today would be a day of repentance and, and renewal in the gospel, a, a renewal of covenant vows and love for one another, that men would love and lead their wives and women would love and come alongside their husbands and support and in loving submission, that men would lead not with harshness or overbearing, but with tenderness and love and servant-heartedness. And Lord, we pray for all those who are single and desiring to be married. We ask that you'd grant them grace and patience. Your grace is sufficient for them. We pray that they would wait upon you for that one that you would bring to them. And Lord, we pray for all of our covenant children, that one day you would provide for them a spouse. In many years to come, bring them a spouse that will bring honor and glory to you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to please stand as we sing together, Come to the Waters, number 444 in your Trinity hymn.